Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. We are facing an unprecedented energy moment with low supply and prices likely to remain unaffordable for consumers, especially the poorest, for a while. In the face of this, electrification is presented as a panacea, especially in the longer term. But if we look a little closer, we can ask ourselves whether this is always the case, whether this is the panacea, and if there are and it would be valid alternatives in the future. So I wanted to interview a sector expert to find out how the liquid fuel industry has rebuilt itself around the pressing needs for affordability, sustainability, and net zero, how it is addressing greenwashing, and how it envisions its own future. To do this, I invited a guest from the other side of the Atlantic, Dr. Thomas Batcher. Tom is the technical director of the United States National Heat Research Alliance, NORA. Tom leads a group providing research on liquid fuels and the technical support needed to develop a more efficient future for his industry. Tom has been investigating energy systems, air pollutant emissions, and the use of biofuels in boilers and furnaces for many, many years. Thanks, Tom, so much for being here with me today, and welcome to Energetic. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. So maybe I should start off with a, a bit of an introduction on what is NORA, my organization. So we are NORA, the National Oil Heat Research Alliance. We are a congressionally authorized organization, which serves the research needs of the liquid fuel heating industry. So this industry includes some 5 million homes and businesses that use lighter fuel, distillate, distillate liquid fuel uh, across the United States. Mostly uh, on the residential side, um, focused in the northeast part of the U.S. That's just the way it is. So in our um, authorization, one of the things that we have as a very important uh, mission, I, I would say, for us is to explore the use of biofuels in this industry, leading to the complete conversion from fossil fuels to biofuels. A pretty challenging task, I, I would say. That's very, very, very interesting because when we think uh, liquid fuel or fuel in general, we never think of biofuels. So you've been in the sector for quite some time. How you, you must have seen the evolution. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about this and what brought you as a person into the liquid fuel industry? Were you fascinated by this kind of American dream of finding oil in your garden? <laughs> I, I have been involved with this for a long time. I, I must say, so I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer and I'm really interested in thermal systems, energy conversion, energy efficiency, of course, uh, doing things the right way. And, and the science of combustion, I must say, is a, is a fascinating area broadly for, for me. 
There have been many different approaches, I would say, towards biofuels that could be used in this in this market sector. Fuels that are derived from vegetable oil and, and all of those derivatives, fuels that are derived from cellulosic sources, fuels that are derived from other things. There's a play now to uh, look at fuels derived from yogurt processing, which is fascinating to me. So there has been a lot of a lot of work in this area and there continues to be a lot of work in this in this area. In the long term, we could say that fuels derived from cellulosic sources, wood waste, for example, are really attractive for a bunch of reasons. But biodiesel, fuel derived from vegetable oil, waste grease, and other uh, used cooking oil and other sources like that is something we can't ignore in a way in this market sector now because it's being produced in volumes that matter to us. And so I'll, I, I guess I'll talk quite a bit about biodiesel, which is fame or fatty acid methyl esters uh, and is certainly you know uh, common in Europe as well as here. So I'll be talking quite a bit about biodiesel, but let me talk about maybe alternatives first because we are really interested in everything. Another pathway that can be considered for the use of these same waste streams, that is vegetable oil, waste greases, used cooking oil, is hydrogenated vegetable oil or renewable diesel, which is another twist on the same, the same feedstock. That is, in, in a way, it's a better fuel. It is hydrogenated, which is a high-pressure process over a catalyst, hydrogen is added. So it's starting to become seriously considered in this market sector, but really it is not broadly available to us and it's fairly expensive. It is mostly being used in diesel applications. So while I might like it, it's not really a fuel that yet we we seem to have available to us. Cellulosic fuels, there, there have been a lot of different runs at using wood waste to produce liquid fuels. Thermochemical conversion processes, biological conversion processes. We have been involved in several different studies, including some field tests on some of the fuels of, of those types. They're attractive because of the size of the resource, but again, they're not yet available to us. So biodiesel, on the other hand, which is produced from these waste streams through a low pressure process, methanol is added, there's a liquid catalyst, and uh, the biodiesel is produced, is produced in really large volumes. I I don't know, I'm going to say two, three billion gallons now, which is serious volumes relative to the needs of this of this market sector. So we're in this, I would say, for the long haul. And as fuels available to us change, we may adopt. But for now, it's all about biodiesel for us because that's that is the fuel that we have. That's really interesting. And yeah, let's say that next time I, I visit the US, I will definitely come and visit uh, one of these plants with you because 
I just feel that now my understanding of the biofuels and like the, the kind of fuels made out of waste and food residues, etc., is expanding. I had never heard of anything made with yogurt, did you say? That's, yeah. that's, that's pretty fascinating. I guess that, however, you are aware also of the concerns and of the battle that could come from using this waste to run your car and then produce CO2 emissions, etc., rather than feed the planet. So I understand that a lot of your work is really on reusing something that was there and that would go to waste anyway. But uh, how do you make sure that there is this uh, kind of uh, consistent processes and also clear understanding that the, the fuel we are making is not taken out of people's mouths, literally? It's a great question. Now, I tend to be on the end use side, but I'll try my best at, at, at this question. A lot of the fuel that is used in biodiesel in our heating sector is derived from soybean oil. So not all of it is is from waste. You know, we like the waste sources, but some of it is is derived from soybean oil. Now, in fact, when interest in biodiesel started, it started because the demand for soybean oil was low. The farmers had no market for it. So when soybeans are produced, there's the meal and there's the oil that comes off. And the meal is a really important source of protein for animal feed. That's the demand for the meal is very high and you know contributes very importantly to the food chain. The soybean oil is also somewhat used for food, but the demand for soybean oil for food, they can't use all of the soybean oil that's that's produced for food. So there's extra soybean oil. So having biodiesel as a secondary source for that soybean oil is really good for the overall production of soybeans and soybean meal and animal feed. In fact, the argument gets made that the production of biodiesel, having this secondary off-ramp for that extra soybean oil helps lower the cost overall for the soybean meal because now there's this second revenue stream for it. So it can help make those foods that use soy meal for production cheaper. On the sustainability question, there's a lot of uh, a lot of ways to look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I guess that's you come often with the question, yes, but soy production for animal feed may come from deforested uh, parts of the Amazon. So it becomes really like uh, complicated to justify this kind of uh, byproducts, even if it's only a byproduct. You have to like put it in the broader context of sustainability. You're absolutely right. We can't do that. You know, there there is in the U.S. renewable fuel standard and advanced biofuels are defined. and you're not allowed to, you know, put in for that process fuels that are derived from lands that were repurposed like that. You know, you can't destroy forests to grow soybeans. It just, the fuels that you produce won't get accepted as a renewable fuel in the U.S. And yeah, no, we can't do that. So, so it, it, it has to be no conflict like that in terms of land use. We're, we're just not allowed. So palm oil, for for example, is never used in the U.S. We can't, we're not allowed. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like knowing that there are those standards that also guarantee 
that the sector is going in a certain direction and that there are uh, valid alternatives that are become more and more cleaner and cleaner, basically, those alternatives. And that whatever is available today, you are also thinking about the future and the amount of waste and and uh, this kind of balance between the immediate needs to run our cars. Uh, no, you don't run the cars. It's really for heating the houses. But uh, that's, that's also where it's interesting. So can you tell us a little bit more about liquid fuel for the housing sector in the, in the U.S.? How it, you said, I think 5 million people were heating their homes with the um, liquid uh, fuel. So how does that work in practice? Is there a particular reason why they would be using uh, liquid fuel instead of the electricity grid or gas networks, for instance? Ooh, what a great question. So so there, there's about 5 million customers, residential and commercial combined. So the volume of fuel is about 5 billion gallons. So it's a pretty it's a pretty good sized market. So why don't they use natural gas? In, in general, there's good technical reasons why folks would want to use liquid fuels. Very often it's price driven and very often it's driven by the availability of the gas network. You know, so, some of the areas are ju just don't have the gas network. It's expensive to make the connection to extend the pipes in, you know, mountainous or rural areas. It's difficult to do that. So liquid fuel tends to be the, the choice in, in those areas. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. With regard to the electric grid and heat pumps, there is a strong movement in, in the U.S. to convert to ele electrification of buildings for heating and cooling through heat pumps which is great, and, and it makes a lot of sense. Part of the issue there is the significant capital cost associated with the conversion from a current heating system to heat pumps. So that's a barrier to market expansion. The rate of market expansion of heat pumps has been, I, I would say, disappointing for those who really want to push that. So that's one side. The other side of it is our grid is not yet 100% renewable. We're on track to get there. There's absolutely big plans and, uh, you know, timelines and, and it's getting there, but it's decades away before we have a 100% renewable grid. So one of the points that gets made is that the use of a biofuel, such as biodiesel, in a currently petroleum oil-fired home heating system can be done now with the greenhouse gas impacts being realized now and so not wait 10 years or more for the grid to be green and those greenhouse gas and and the conversion to biofuels can be done at can be done at very low cost we have done some studies recently for example we have a publication coming out on uh hybrid systems which use liquid fuels of course i want to say biofuels and heat pumps in combination with liquid fuels providing backup for the coldest part of the season And also, also during the coldest part of the season, the heat pump is at its least efficient, but the oil or liquid fuel fired system is at its most efficient. So there can be some advantages to a kind of a hybrid system like that. So you, you mentioned to me that it was uh, you had been approached by a community in Minnesota who decided to make that choice. Can you tell us a little bit more about the choices of this community and uh, really like the um, 
you talked about the weather and the fact that the winters can be really, really cold. So can you elaborate a little bit on this? Because I think it's really relevant, you know, in the American context to have this kind of view. I have like the the, the movie Fargo in mind uh, with the kind of a <laughs> total total white and, and frozen land uh, for some time. So, you know, I, I would really uh, like to understand also how, how it works for the people and why they... I mean, if you have any ideas why they choose that, you mentioned the price that is more affordable, but are, yeah, really what would be really the triggers in your view? So Minnesota is a beautiful place. It's it's really, really cold in the in the winter. And it's it's a great example of, you know, a challenging place to, to use heat pumps for, for heating. But it's, they are, they're exploring, they're expanding. So systems that do that in, in that part of the country, in the Northeast, we have many boiler hydronic heating systems. In Minnesota, it's mostly forced air furnace systems, which, which I think are very uncommon in, in Europe. You have to explain what it is. <laughs> so so in, a, in a boiler system, right, it's hydronic, so water is heated and it goes through the radiators, that, which, which can heat the home. In a forced air system, the air is heated or cooled, but let's say heated, and then distributed through ducts to all parts of, of the house. So the air is, is pushed around pushed around the house. The advantage of such an approach is it can easily do both heating and, and cooling. So with a heat pump in a warm air furnace, it's fine. You can put in a, a, a heat pump in a warm air furnace, but for backup under the coldest environments, you need to have either a fuel-fired backup, and, and it can be integrated into the same indoor box, if you, if you will. So you can have a, uh, a furnace that heats the air, the coils from the heat pump that could also heat or cool the air in that same air handler box, which is inside of the house. Or you can have an electric heater, which would provide that backup. So it's starting to gain acceptance, I, I would say, but always with a fuel-fired or electric heat source backup. That, that's interesting because um, somehow you're talking about situations where it's kind of extreme weather events when uh, heat pumps wouldn't like uh, work at their best they become extremely relevant because, I mean, you can store as much wood as you want. It would never be as, uh, if I understand correctly, it would never be as as efficient as fuels. So that becomes really uh, like a matter of, of comfort or keeping your, your home, etc. Are there any also additional works on energy efficiency in general in order to make those uh, houses, those communities a little bit more resilient to extreme climate weather? Climate events? There is, and it's a very important topic, not so much to manage the coldest climate capacity question that you raise, which is which is good, and I agree. But the argument is made, and I think it's a good one, that if you're gonna convert to heat pumps, the, it doesn't make sense to meet that load, the current load for heating those homes with the grid, uh, e even with heat pumps. It makes a lot more sense to reduce 
the electric the heat demand of those buildings through energy efficiency measures to the greatest degree possible and then combine that with a heat pump so that's what folks are doing but so now you have the cost of the heat pump plus you have the cost of the energy efficiency measures so it's um it's a step which is expensive for the homeowners yeah, I would be really interested in also hearing about the question of uh, costs and about the kind of communities that use them, because you, you mentioned the question of affordability very, very often. And from what I understood from uh, previous conversations and, and previous read, low-income communities don't receive this so many benefits and so much help that would make Let's say total retrofit plus a total switch to a heat pump, uh, something really affordable. So they have to make uh, intermediary, let's call them trade-offs, or they have to choose intermediary options. And that's also where you intervene. Am I correct? Yeah. So considering the, the low income market segment, you know, which, which is, uh, you know, an important part of the liquid fuel market is in the low income area. The conversion to biodiesel can be done at a much lower cost than the cost of energy efficiency measures plus heat pumps. Energy efficiency measures make sense no matter what. I mean, they, they just they, they just always make sense. So, but the the investment cost required for the use of uh, biodiesel to reduce greenhouse gas emissions now is much lower. Different states and the federal government have incentive programs that are intended to help quite a bit with the, these costs and so that's that you know that's an important factor but even with those it's expensive and so you know we we do see you know biodiesel as a a lower cost way to achieve in the near term greenhouse gas emission reductions so what what's happening now you know to to introduce a biofuel like this into the market is hard because there's codes and standards, manufacturers need to have be on board, have products that, that can do this. It's really, really hard to do this, to make these changes in, in the whole market so that you can accept a, a new fuel. As it stands right now, we have some 400,000 homes that are using 20% biodiesel blends in Petroleum, because you can mix the two just fine. So that's a pretty, pretty large number of homes that are that are doing that. We have about nine thousand homes that are using fifty percent biodiesel blends, and we have maybe a hundred and fifty homes that are using a hundred percent biodiesel. In other words, completely switching, and that is what we want to do. That is where we want to go. So a lot of effort and emphasis now is on the codes and standards and products that are necessary in order to get full formal approvals for the use of such biofuels. So the folks who are using 100% biofuel now are kind of doing it on a pilot basis. My home is heated with 100% biodiesel right now. But I think we need the codes and standards need to catch up with what, what the market wants to do, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's between the market and also the uh, net zero requirements. I mean, uh, it's it's really about the future to be as uh, to lower as our emission as as much as possible and be the cleanest and most sustainable as possible. So that's really really important that your industry is also like aware of this and really 
wants to keep up at the technological level, but also at the social economic level to be part also of the solution. And that's really important also, I think, to have a honest and calm conversation to about about those those aspects. As I said in the introduction, I think there are it's really important to know whether valid alternatives exist and also to limit at many levels uh, the, 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 the negative impact of fossil fuels and the impact on health and environment, etc. So let's look at the bigger picture. You mentioned that the grid right now in the US is far from being uh, clean and far from being uh, net zero. So what kind of other challenges do you see in the American context that makes your activity, your sector relevant? And uh, what would be, let's say, your own definition of sustainability in this context? Ooh, great question. So, you know, I think I think the challenges to, you know, full, full electrification via the grid are the capacity, reliability, energy storage. Here in, in New York State, where, where I live, there's a massive initiative to put offshore wind generation in in place and it's exciting and that's and and that's that's happening and so there is a pathway to a, a renewable grid but with increased use in in electric vehicles and increased use in in electrification for buildings it's not just a you know a necessity to meet the current electric load but also the the future electric load and so there is debate and in, in plans and and uh, for you know how that will be done. That you know part of that gets to the need for energy efficiency. You know we're we're working making big investments to build this renewable power generation. If we use less electricity all around, we would have to build less renewable power sources. And it's you know I I think it's a trade off that folks respect. But then you know there's also the the distribution networks that need to be enhanced and improved in in order to meet the increased electric demand. So that's a that's another large investment that needs to be made. And there's the intermittency question. And so there is the the need for storage in different ways. Certainly hydrogen as a storage medium, batteries, you know, large utility scale battery storage and other you know, storage approaches are under development, under discussion, and will be brought to play. But that's those are all, I think, major challenges that we, that we face going forward. So we'll get there. But you know, we're trying, I guess, to have some impact in the near term with the biofuels, and so that's kind of a bit, a bit of the focus. That's interesting. And you said that your home was provisioned with uh, with biofuels. And I also heard that you did a lot of work yourself in your home to just uh, try and test your solutions. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So uh, my wife is very understanding. <laughs> so yeah, our, our heating system has been converted to uh, 100% biodiesel. It's been running on, on biodiesel now for for two years, so we have no no fossil fuel at all that goes into our heating system, and so with that, we based upon the bio the current biodiesel production, it's about a seventy five percent reduction in the greenhouse gas emissions uh, associated with you know with that. So that's going really well. 
but we also have solar photovoltaics on the on the roof to help the electric demand. So, and we we're looking at those numbers really, really carefully. And I, you know, I like to I'd like to see how I can be net zero in in my own home. So, when I look at the electric production and and Rules on exporting electricity back to the grid change in different places here. I, I think it's quite a good arrangement where we can export and bank it, essentially. We never get paid for what we export, but we bank it, and it's great. So it looks like, and certainly the data is coming in this way so far, we, we can export net power over the course of the year, a little bit. But that little bit, and considering the carbon score of the grid at the present time, is enough to offset any greenhouse gas emissions from the biodiesel fuel that we do use. So on balance, between that little bit of of exported electricity and the low GHG score of the biodiesel, I think my house is on track to be net zero for this year. And and that includes central air conditioning, which is a pretty pretty good size electrical load. So that that's a that's in there as well. well. That's a perfect transition because it's such an interesting question that is totally that has been totally overlooked in Europe so far. Like the needs for air conditioning and all the costs that are associated. For instance, uh, the humidification of your home when you have this kind of systems running, that can have a huge impact on your electricity bill. It happened to me. And really, honestly, I discovered that really recently that when you have this kind of uh, system that also uh, goes with um, calling your home, you have a lot of associated costs. And uh, I've been working on these issues in developing countries, in Burkina Faso, for instance, and that over there, the, the biggest, the moment where the biggest amount of electricity is consumed is during the warmer time of the year, which are the months between March and May or June. And that's really an interesting and important conversation to have in Europe. Uh, we've just faced a two months heat wave and uh, the UK had experienced for the first time in their history, they experienced more than 40 degrees. I mean, I'm in Italy, so 40 degrees is quite normal, but still, um, I think it's a, also an important discussion to have. And from the example that I've seen in Burkina Faso, the pressure on the grid can be so important that you really need to have some backups and it's kind of impossible to ask people to sacrifice their comfort. Oh, I I agree completely. It's really it's really important. So with with the photovoltaics on my roof, I am happy to report that my electric bill during the month of July was twenty dollars. So it, it essentially I produced all the electricity I needed to run the air conditioning system during the month of July, which was pretty pretty hot here. So that works. The Folks are installing heat pumps, either ductless mini-split heat pumps or central systems. I think more commonly the ductless mini-split single room sort of, or, you know, located, you know, because the the installation cost is cheaper. You don't need to install ducts and, and things like that. It makes sense. But one of the big motivators that people have for doing that is it provides them with air conditioning, which maybe they didn't have in the past. So they do the heat pump for heating, but they also, as a side benefit, get the the air conditioning. And in a lot of cases, that's a big motivator. So more and more, we're, we're going we're gonna to have to have it. But folks are going to demand that. But now there's maybe 
in some parts of our region going to be an electric demand for air conditioning where there wasn't before. So that's a factor too. Yeah, indeed. So from what I understand uh, from uh, from our conversation, really, I'm a total neophyte concerning uh, fuels. And I really hope uh, that I will get the chance to see how it works in practice to come visit a plant uh, someday. That would be really lovely. Absolutely. Please come. I would, I would love to, to do that. And uh, yes, so what I understand is that our needs are so pressing for heating, for cooling, for overall having a resilient grid, uh, having a system that works and that for everyone and that is sustainable, also affordable for everyone, that it's really, in your view, a combination of having different tools such as solar panels, such as energy efficiency, such as heat pumps, but also have liquid fuels as as backup solutions, as something that um, overall doesn't really harm your, let's say, uh, environmental footprint, but uh, on the contrary, is part of a broader picture of a broader scenario of a a sustainable future. You said it very well. Thank you. (laughs) That's perfect. Okay, then. So, uh, Tom, thank you so much for uh, recording this podcast with me. Uh, I really enjoyed it and I hope to see you soon in the near future. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And again, thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.